We're going to begin with prayer this morning, and I want to share with you briefly what, what we're doing in prayer as we engage the Lord, is we want to thank Him for new life. This, uh, and these young families, little babies are showing up everywhere, and little Zane Safer was born this week, and uh, a month early, she went in for her routine appointment, and they said, you're not leaving, and uh, she's an accountant, so she's just driving her crazy. She's a planner. And she's just having a fit. So let's pray for the safer family and for little Zane that he will, uh, he's healthy so far. And just pray for his viability. And uh, some little voices, little cooing we hear back there. We can thank him for Maggie Hicks. I don't know if that's Maggie. I'm not accusing Maggie, but maybe it is. (laughs) Maggie Hicks and uh, little Zoe Webb, three little new babies just in the last few weeks. Uh, We want to thank the Lord for new life and pray for mommy and daddy. We also want to pray for Mike and Abby Scheutzer. Mike and Abby have uh, left the country for Kazakhstan, and they are going to um, uh, hopefully be bringing home their little girl that they are adopting, and uh, you'll hear more about that. It's kind of a sensitive thing that we're trying not to... There's only so much information we can share about it. It's kind of a funny deal, so just bathe that in prayer. They may be over there a couple of months. We're hoping that it'll be much shorter than that, but it takes some time to adopt a baby from Kazakhstan. We also want to lift up Keith McCord. Keith got a report this week that uh, was not good. His body is responding to chemotherapy, but his brain is not. And um, we want to bathe his brain in prayer physically. And uh, there's some new spots of cancer. And over the next three weeks, he will be having daily brain radiation at uh, Baylor. And uh, we want to bathe Keith and his family in prayer. And I, I'm making an announcement about that three-week endeavor and our corporate involvement in that commitment or in that involvement. I'll share that at the, at the end of the message this morning. And I also want to pray for Ralph Powell Fellowship Bible Church. Um, nothing bad going on there that I know of. We just want to lift them up, pray that this morning that they are enjoying and savoring Christ together and that we can have a true fellowship with them. So let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we want to turn this time over to you and uh, just pray that even in these next few moments that we, as we bring thanksgiving and praise and prayer before you and requests, that more than anything, you'll find us satisfied in the work of Christ and that that'll be the source that you uh, receive these prayers from, hearts that are just enjoying him, and hearts that are content. Uh, Lord, we want to say thank you for new life and we are so thankful for little Zane and little Zoe and little Maggie. We lift up their little hearts and their bodies and just pray for um, physical growth, Lord. And we also pray that even right now that you are creating in them a a recognition and appreciation of their wretchedness and sinfulness so that when they recognize the work of Christ, that they will cling to him desperately. Lord, we pray that you will draw them to the Son. We pray for their parents, too, that the parents can be part of that process of cultivating the ground to be ready to receive the seed of Christ crucified and risen. And pray that you'll give them insight and the rest of us that are parents insight that can only come from you of how to parent uh, for eternity. Lord, we also want to lift up Keith and his family. And uh, Lord, we beg for healing. We just pray for whether it's through radiation treatment or chemotherapy or whatever instrument you want to use that you'll heal his body. Lord, in the same breath, we thank you. And we, if we fail to acknowledge this in, a, in our our um, 
appreciation for this, we would be missing something. We thank you so much that he knows Christ. We're thankful that he's been healed of the worst thing. And um, we're grateful for that. But Lord, we do pray for his physical body and pray for his brain and his treatment procedure. Lord, we also want to lift up Ralph Powell. We want to uh, just tell you that we appreciate partnership with them and pray that in whatever way possible that we can have a true, tangible uh, engagement with them in a shared Lord, shared ministry, shared commission. And Lord, we pray right now as they are, uh, probably even at this moment as Ralph is beginning to preach, that you are empowering him and that you are speaking through him and that he is communicating or is an instrument in communicating a message that will just change people and people will be more captivated with Christ and more satisfied with Him and more living and loving in a life of worship. Lastly, Lord, we want to thank you for Mike and Abby Schweitzer and their uh, burden to adopt uh, from Kazakhstan. Lord, we pray that that process will be a God-glorifying process. And we pray that you will just uh, grow them through this. We pray for the little girl or boy uh, that they are adopting. Lord, we pray that even their little heart will be uh, cultivated right now and will be prepared to receive the seed of Christ crucified and risen. Thank you for this time, Lord. We treasure time corporately. We just treasure time in the Word. We treasure time where we can come and express our gratitude and our worship together. Lord, in these next few moments, I pray that we can lay our lives bare. I pray that you will just tune out distractions in in a supernatural way. I pray that you will just captivate us with the riches in this word. Thank you so much for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I'm uh, reading with my kids right now. Christy and I are working through Pilgrim's Progress. That's a book that I'm sure many of you have heard of. It's written in the 1600s. It was by a, a pastor, a preacher, and his name was John Bunyan. Not Paul, John. And um, I got that mixed up one time. It's pretty embarrassing. But John Bunyan, man, this guy, he, had, he only had a couple of books. He had Fox's Book of Martyrs, and he had the Bible. He just didn't have a lot of materials, but he just ate the Word. It was so obvious that he consumed the Word. He wrote this book. It's kind of a, uh, he's, he's communicating what's a dream of this guy named Christian on this journey of faith. He introduces other characters later. We're just getting to those characters, so I can't tell you a whole lot about them. But this guy named Christian is going along the journey of faith. He's already begun his relationship with Christ. Uh, It shows him kind of going through a process of recognizing that, man, I am doomed for wrath. And then he begins the journey of faith. He goes through the gate, the narrow gate, and he comes to the cross And this big burden of sin that he's carrying falls off at the base of the cross. Just the imagery is just delightful. And he's going along his journey down the narrow way. And he meets a family in a house. And this family, some of the family members um, are charity, prudence, and piety. And he's talking with them. And they're asking him a bunch of questions. And so here's where prudence begins to ask him some questions. Then Prudence thought it good to ask him a few questions and desired to hear his answer to them. She asked, Don't you sometimes think of the country you came from? Don't you sometimes think of the world, essentially, where you came from, walking in the ways of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, 
okay, pre-Christ. Don't you think about those kind of things? Christian answered her, yes, but with feelings of shame and abhorrence. For if I had been thinking of the country I had left, I would have had opportunity to return. Instead, I'm longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Well, don't you still carry with you some of the things that you were, uh, that you were acquainted with there, continued Prudence? Yes, admitted Christian, but much against my will, especially my inward and worldly thoughts. All my fellow countrymen, as well as I myself, were delighted in them. But now all those things are my grief. If I could have my own way, I would choose never to think of those things again. But when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Prudence responded, But don't you find that at times it's as if those things were conquered that at other times cause you confusion? Yes, said Christian, but seldom. Those times, however, are golden hours to me in which such things happen. Prudence continued her questioning. Can you remember what causes your annoyances to be as if they were conquered? Yes, answered Christian. When I think about what I saw at the cross, that will do it. When I look upon my embroidered coat, that will do it. Also, when I look into the document I carry next to my heart and my coat, that will do it. And when my thoughts are warmed about where I'm going, that will do it. Prudence then asked, and what is it that makes you want so much to go to Mount Zion? Well, I hope to see alive there the one who hung dead on the cross, said Christian. For to tell you the truth, I love him because my burden was eased by him. And there I hope to get rid of all those things that to this day are in me and that are an annoyance to me, for I'm weary of my inward sickness. They say there is no death there, and that I'll dwell there with such company as I like best. I desire to be where I shall die no more and with the company that shall cry continually, Holy, holy, holy. Man, that's rich. That's rich. My prayer has been this week as I prepared for this time in the Word, is actually over the last few months, this morning, that we would say, in regards to the work of Christ, that will do it. That will do it. Let's jump in. John chapter 11. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 38. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. And then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Augustine wrote in the 4th century, something like that, 5th century. He says, it's a good thing he called him by name, or that graveyard would have emptied. <laughs> Lazarus, come forth. 
The man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind Stinko and let him go. Unbind he who stinketh and let him go. There's no imagery in John that's wasted. The last few weeks, actually the last couple of years, we've been bathing in John We've been enjoying and savoring these miracles. John wrote the book. He communicated seven signs, is what he calls them. They're really miracles for a purpose of supporting his intent of the book. Later on in the book of John, it says, These things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. Man, that's what I want. So I'll bathe in here with him. So that's what we're doing. And we are appreciating and recognizing the imagery of here in John chapter 11. Here in chapter 11, he calls forth Lazarus, a man dead four days, a man stinking and decaying. And Lazarus' deadness, his decomposition, and his resultant stench, and his utter and complete inability to do anything about that are all images of what and who we are apart from Christ. The last few weeks, we've been considering, we're kind of in the middle of this or toward the two-thirds end of this He Stinketh series. It says that in the King James Version, so that's where it came from. He Stinketh. I just thought that was funny. But the last few weeks, we've been drawing out these truths from this He Stinketh recognition. When you recognize your condition, here's some of the things we've drawn out. The formerly smelly, and that's what I've called them. The Word says that now that we are a sweet aroma of Christ to God, for those who are in fellowship with Him, we're a sweet aroma of Christ to God. To some, we smell like death. To some, we go, hmm. They smell and they say life. But right now, as of now, we're a sweet aroma of Christ to God because of the work of Christ. But at this time, we are formally, or now I would refer to us as formally smelly. If you've been called forth from that tomb, for me, I was six when I heard that call. It wasn't audible, but I heard it in my heart where the Lord said, Ben, come forth. So if you are a formerly smelly, if you too have heard that, then hopefully you can identify with some of these observations. The last few weeks, we've considered these observations of the formerly smelly. They are students of the stench of their tombs. The formerly smelly spent enough time here in this book where this book serves as the mirror that it is, and you go, ooh, I stink. Ooh, man, I'm pretty wretched. Oh, man, I'm pretty sinful. Where you can begin to see yourself in league with Lazarus. And you can see that you too occupied a tomb just like Lazarus. And also, the formerly smelly, know the singular reason that they don't stink any longer. It's not because of anything in them. It's not because you're a nice person. It's not because God thought, ah, you know, I see some potential there. It's actually just because of His divine sovereignty that He called us Fourth, and we know the singular reason we don't stink any longer is because of the finished and complete work of Christ, not because of anything that we've done. Third thing we learned about the formerly smelly is that they worship with their lives. The formerly smelly are not content with going to church. The formerly smelly are not content with doing church. The formerly smelly want to place their life as a daily sacrifice. They worship with their lives. It's not something that you do. It's a people that you are. It's something that you become where anything less than everything that you are offered back to Christ is not enough and not sufficient. So they worship with their lives. And also they worship from a pierced, horse-trodden heart. 
Whenever Peter was preaching in Acts, he communicated the gospel to them and he even said, Jesus whom you've crucified, that's who I now preach and profess as risen and alive and ascended to the right hand. And and when they appreciated that they were the ones that nailed him to the cross by the hands of sinful men, when they recognized that it was their sin that kept him there, they were pierced to the heart and that's where true worship comes from. And we need to recognize that too, that our guilt nailed him there. 2,000 years ago, you may say, I didn't have a part to play in that. And actually you did. We crucified him by the hands of sinful men. And that should pierce our hearts. Homer used the word whenever he wrote that word for pierced. And he used it actually describing a herd of horses trampling the ground. And that's a good word for the heart of worship. That it's horse trodden. Because of our wretchedness. Because of our sinfulness. And then last week we considered that the formerly smelly are surprised by grace. When we have a fuller appreciation for our sinfulness and our wretchedness and we see how low grace had to reach to get us and we see that it's not because of anything in us but just because of His sweet offering of grace, that surprises us. It shocks us. It leaves us stupefied, flabbergasted. And that's where worship comes from too. Today we're going to consider a new observation on the formerly smelly. The formerly smelly are content. Now I'm going to define contentment as we go along, but I want to round out contentment. Normally when we start teaching or preaching or engaging an issue or a topic of contentment, we begin to think about stuff. Okay, he's going to preach about stuff, where stuff is not the kind of thing that we should be content with. And this is bigger than stuff. It includes stuff, but this is about your station in life. This is about your lot in life. How to find contentment wherever he has you and whatever he has you in. The formerly smelly will be content in those things in the backdrop of a smelly, stinky tomb. We're going to go to to an expert today. He's not here physically, but his words are here. He's a guy that I've been uh, walking with for a time. His name is Jeremiah Burroughs. He was born around 1600 A.D. They don't know the birth year exactly, but he died around 1646. He was a Puritan preacher in that time frame. He wrote a book. It's called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And the book is just rich. I encourage you, if you want to read something really life-changing, it's readable. You don't have to be a brainiac to understand it. Uh, It's strong. And here's some of the things that he communicates in his book. Listen to these. Here's some of his points on contentment. Get ready for these. This is where we're going to spend the next next little while. A content person knows that they are nothing. It gets worse. A content person knows that they deserve nothing. Here's the third. A content person knows that they can do nothing. Here's where it really is bad. A content person knows that they are worse than nothing. A content person knows, this is the last one, that if they perish, there will be no great loss. Now, I must confess to you, when I read those for the first time, I thought, whoa. 
man, this guy's really gone off the deep end. You know, you hear about Puritans that just so pious and so extreme that I'm going, man, where did he get that from? But as I read more, as I engaged more, this was bathed in the Word. He didn't conjure these things up, but I want to give you evidence for that. And what I want to do in the next few minutes is I want to take those five statements that he made. I want to change the language of them a little bit and import John 11 imagery into it. And we're going to go back and re-engage every single one of them and see if he conjured them up. Here's the first one. The formerly smelly, if we can appreciate that the formerly smelly are content, if those should be one and the same. The formerly smelly know that they are nothing. Turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 64. Isaiah chapter 64. I have about four passages this morning that I'm going to call you to turn to. And let me tell you why I encourage you to do so. If you need to look at the table of contents in the front of the Bible, that's okay. You don't have to be too cool to look at that. Just go ahead and turn there. I normally have page numbers, but I don't this morning. But I want you to see it. I want you to see that this is not conjured up. It's not something that somebody's made up. You need to see the language, see the words underline them, circle them, do whatever you have to do to get them in here. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Look at some of the language in there when we're talking about us, all of us. Our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Another version actually says, calls them rags. That the best we have to offer is filthy rags. Man, that's pretty extreme, isn't it? Then it goes on to say that all of us wither like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. Does a leaf really have any value? Let me think about that. A dead leaf? You see a dead leaf floating in the wind? This is what Isaiah, what the Lord through Isaiah is communicating to us, that our value, can we be that extreme? We'll dig into the other ones for a moment, but I want to share with you how compelling this was to Jeremiah Burroughs. Here's what he did. When he engaged this truth for him, that was the formerly smelly or the content, know that they are nothing, if we really are nothing. This is how he gripped him with passages like that. This is how it left him and how it gripped him. I'm going to read to you a passage from Proverbs. Don't turn there. Just listen to it. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 4 and 5. This is a passage on wealth. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. He's basically saying that wealth has no substance. Wealth flies away on wings just like the wind catches it up. And actually, the way Jeremiah Burroughs summarized that, he says, don't consider that which is not. Now here's how this picture of knowing that they are nothing left him in light of that he looked at that and he said God 
why did you command us to do something or not to do something that you do? Why do you command us to not put our affections and our eyes and think on that which is not, yet that's exactly what you've done to us? Your affections, through some mysterious act of grace and mercy, you have set your eyes on that which is not in us. The formerly smelly know that they are nothing. And they're probably left as surprised and confused as Jeremiah Burroughs was. Secondly, the formerly smelly know that they deserve nothing. Turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. The formerly smelly know that they are nothing, that they're like leaves in the wind, dead leaves, just being blown away. The formerly smelly know that they deserve nothing. Let's look at this. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. You could almost engage and enter in Lazarus' story. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, living with Lazarus, smelling, decomposing, stuck in your tomb, unable to do anything about that, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Your king was the prince of the power of the air. That's your former condition. Paul says, you know what? Us Jews, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. There's a potential to read that and go, ooh, man, those kids, those children of wrath, man, they're throwing their wrath all over the place. It's not children owning wrath. It's not children distributing wrath. It's children being on the receiving end of wrath. See, before Christ, that's how we're characterized, as children on the receiving end of deserving wrath. Jeremiah Burroughs says, you know, the formerly smelly or the content know they deserve nothing. I would just argue with him for a moment, say, Jeremiah, you know what? According to Ephesians chapter 2, we do deserve something. We deserve nothing except that we deserve God's wrath for our walking according to the prince of the power of the air, for our kingship being turned toward the prince of the power of the air, for our obedience and our affections being turned in that way, that's what we deserve. It's God's wrath. So yes, I could agree with him that the formerly smelling know they deserve nothing but for wrath. Third, turn to John chapter 15, verse 5. First was formerly smelly, know that they are nothing. Second is formerly smelly, know that they deserve nothing. The third is the formerly smelly, know they can do nothing. Okay, look at this. John chapter 15, verse 5. This is a passage. We'll get there eventually, but we hadn't gotten there yet. But I look forward to it. John chapter 15. Jesus has just told him, he says, abide in me. Abide in me. In verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see it? It's in black and white. If you have a problem being characterized as 
being nothing, deserving nothing, and doing nothing, then you have to ignore Scripture. Because it's right there in black and white. I didn't make it up. I just read it. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You think you can parent apart from Christ? You think you can be a parent that does something that actually equips and prepares children for eternity apart from Christ? No. You think you can be a husband or wife and be involved in a healthy marriage apart from Christ? You can exist. But you can't be married the way God intended it and designed it. Not apart from Christ. The formerly smelly know they can do nothing. Here's the next one. The formerly smelly know that they are worse than nothing. Here's where things get really hard. Turn to Jeremiah 17, 9. Jeremiah 17, 9. You may have surrendered to the first three but this one's really going to rock you. If you've had difficulty with the first three, but you can see them in the Word, okay, I am nothing, I deserve nothing, except for, albeit, wrath, and I can do nothing. This one really goes beyond that, Ben. It's a little bit too aggressive. I'm not sure I can handle that, Jeremiah. Let's consider this from Jeremiah 17, verse 9. This passage is we've eaten before, but it's one we're going to camp out on. Jeremiah 17, 9. It says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Guys, the heart is not neutral. The heart is not this benign thing. The heart is actually deceitful. The heart is actually on the offensive in deceiving and being wicked and conspiring. The word for deceitful there could have been translated two different ways. And I like the other word because it's an uncommon word. And it's one that really, to me, it's an onomatopoeia. Some of you paid attention in elementary school. You know what an onomatopoeia is. a word that sounds like what it is. Like kaboom. That's probably not a good one because that may not actually be a word. But that's for example. <laughs> it sounds like what it is. Here's the word. The heart is insidious. Doesn't that sound like an onomatopoeia to you? The heart is insidious. What it means is it's sinister and menacing. See, the heart is worse than nothing. Nothing would be just benign and neutral. The heart is worse than nothing. In Romans chapter 8, it says that the carnal mind is an enemy of God. Here's the reality. Here's how Jeremiah Burroughs characterized it. He said, we are worse than nothing because nothing would be like an empty vessel. But rather, we are vessels filled with poison. That's how we're worse than nothing. Vessels filled with with poison. Now here's his last observation. The formerly smelly know that if they perish, there will be no great loss. That's one I really had trouble with. Like, y'all, I'm going to tell you. I mean, Christy and I have talked about it before. And, you know, she said to me before, Ben, if I lost you, I don't know if I can make it. I don't think I can make it. And I could say the same thing back to her. Babe, I, I don't either. I mean, you're part of me as far as I'm concerned. How could I possibly go on? Well, let's address that. The formerly smelly know that if they perish, there will be no great loss. Let's consider Lazarus. 
I believe from the way people responded to Lazarus' death, first of all, it's sickness. They send someone off to Christ. If Lazarus had been an old man about to die, you know, just going to die any day, old, they wouldn't have rushed off to Jesus. And they wouldn't have asked him to come rush to, rush to Lazarus' side. He's old. He's going to die. I think he's a young man. And four days later, four days after he's dead, when they're still standing around, groups of people mourning over his death, I think he was a young man, and I think it was what we might call premature death. And I'm also convinced that from an absence of any reference to Mary or Martha's husband, that Lazarus was probably the breadwinner for his sisters. I'm convinced that he had a very important role in their lives. So their mourning, I would expect, was very legitimate because they were probably considering their situation as dire. But here's the reality. God could raise up another to care for Mary and Martha. He could raise up a family to take in Mary and Martha. God can replace any one of us. Our sense of self-importance and horizontal dependence on each other does not reconcile with what Christ said about those who follow Him. He said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's how dependent we are to be on Christ. Is he saying, hate your wife? No, it's hyperbole. He's saying, compared to me, you love me so desperately, it's as if you hate everybody else. I'm convinced that may have been why he cried that day. Because they're weeping over Lazarus when they don't realize that the author of life is standing before them. When you see and appreciate and realize that you would be no great loss, you see that but for Christ, we occupy Lazarus' tomb with him and the world is none the different. Wow. Very encouraging, Ben. Thanks. Appreciate all that. <laughs> what in the world do these truths, if you can agree to them being truths, which I may have had the benefit of spending more time with Jeremiah and more time in the Word unpacking this, but if you can surrender to these being truths, how in the world do these help us with contentment? Man, talk about a difficult connection. It's actually not. These realities of our condition... Our stench, our sinfulness, our wretchedness, our insidious, wretched hearts, our death, our in league with Lazarusness, our nothingness. Really, what they do is they create a big fat itch. They create a big fat itch, and we try to scratch that itch with stuff. We try to scratch that itch with pursuits and pleasures, with everything and anything the world has to offer, with even with ritual and religion. We try and scratch that itch. We may even scratch it with quality family time. And we're left still itchy and discontent. The reason that itch can only be scratched with one thing is the reason that it can only be scratched with one thing the work and the person of Christ alone. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Blessed are those who itch, for they shall be scratched. What creates a hunger and thirst for righteousness? A God-revealed absence of it. That's what happens in this book right here. That's what happened in this He Thinketh series. That's what happens when we consider and engage our nothingness. There's a God-revealed absence of righteousness. A God-revealed absence of the thing that we need the most. It becomes like a vacuum. And the void of it begs to be replaced with what should be there. Without the recognized absence of it, there's no hunger for it. Without a consideration and appreciation for our wretchedness, without an appreciation that we stinketh, there's no readiness to receive that, that scratch that's offered in the person of Christ. But when you see that you stinketh, you are primed and satisfied to receive the only thing and only person that will fill that vacuum. It becomes singular. I love the stories of Jesus feeding the multitudes. And every gospel just con connects these things, and some of them even share two different accounts of him feeding the multitudes. Here's one of those accounts. Listen to this. Just don't, don't turn in your Bible. Just close your eyes maybe and listen. Climb onto this hillside. These guys have been following Christ for three days, and they're hungry. Matthew chapter 15, verse 32. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry for they may faint on the way. He's just developed an itch. The itch is their hunger. The disciples said to him, Where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves you got? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fish. And giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. Scratch. There it is. There's only one person that can do that. That's what the beauty in those accounts of feeding the multitudes is that they found their satisfaction at the hand and work and person of Christ. But first they were hungry. And then, and only then, were they satisfied. You can't go anywhere else and find satisfaction. Their satisfaction on that hillside that day is a picture of the satisfaction that those of you and us will experience if we eat, consume, feast on, and savor Christ. Luke 6.21 says, Blessed are you who hunger now. I'm going to put the Ben Amplified Version. Blessed are you who hunger now, those who see their condition, those who smell their stench, those who recognize their sinfulness and wretchedness, their insidious hearts, their nothingness. Blessed are the itchy, for you shall be satisfied. Contentment and the singular work of Christ are Siamese twins. They're conjoined at the hip. You can't engage one without engaging another. You can't have one without also having the other. 
They are Siamese twins joined at the hip. You can't be content and satisfied and filled apart from the work of Christ. You can't be content and satisfied and filled apart from the work of Christ. If you hear one thing this morning, if you're asleep, wake up and hear that. You can't be content and satisfied and filled apart from the work of Christ. They're not separate issues. They're not separate topics. They go together. I want to give you a case study. It's a brief one. You've been hanging in there. Hang in there a few more minutes. This will be worth your while. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. He's being a, his, his apostleship is being challenged. And um, he's engaging the church at Corinth in this letter and basically... Uh, proving his apostleship. They, they get into the issue of visions. and So Paul is, is, is accounting. In, in, in essence, what he's doing is boasting. He even says, I'm boasting. But here's why. To authenticate my apostleship, to give my credibility in my apostleship. Listen to what he does. Verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1. Boasting is necessary, though it's not profitable. It's like, man, I don't want to do this. But, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, and he's really speaking of himself right here. He kind of shifts to third person, but you'll see in a moment why he's talking of himself. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Like, man, what's the third heaven? The first heaven is the sky. The second heaven is the stars. The third heaven is heaven, as we would call it paradise you can call it start calling it third heaven and people furrow their brow but that's what it is and i know how such a man whether in the body or apart from the body i do not know god knows was caught up into the paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak on behalf of such a man i will boast but on my own behalf i will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses ben amplified version again except in regard to my itch. I'll boast in my itch. I'll boast in my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth, but I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Here you're about to hear what the itch is. Verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, this is why we know he's talking about himself. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. We don't know what that thorn in the flesh was. It may have been a physical ailment. Some people think it was his vision. You know, he asked God, please heal me of my vision. Some people think that it may have been some sickness. Other people think that when we're talking about a messenger of Satan, that they're talking about actually a physical person. It may have been the person that conjured up all this lame, false information in the church at Corinth. It may have actually been a person. But here's the beauty. It's divinely ambiguous. Because insert your thorn in the flesh. Who cares what it is? You know what, you know what your weaknesses are. You know those things that trip you up. You know those things that cripple you that you feel like, oh, Lord, take from me. Insert that in here. It's beautifully ambiguous. He said, concerning, and that's your itch. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. Lord, 
cure me of this itch? And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for your power is perfected in weakness. Your power is perfected in that itch. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. In some way, he's saying, I'm, I boast about those things. Listen to what he says next. This will rock your world. Therefore, I'm well content with weaknesses. The word for well content is actually this. The words, it's a few, it's a collection of words. I'm pleased. I take delight in. I take pleasure in. So, I'm well content. I'm pleased. I take delight in. I take pleasure in my weaknesses with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Why is he strong? Because of verse 9. Because the power of Christ may dwell in me. The only way, the only way, the singular way to get pleasure and delight is to embrace your weaknesses. To embrace your condition, your helplessness, your bankruptcy, your difficulties, your nothingness, your stench, your lot, and your station, because in that you're pointed to the complete sufficiency of Christ. And the power of Christ dwells in you. So when you're having one of those days, when you're hacked and you can't figure out why, which even makes you matter, you ever have a day like that? Am I the only one who has those kind of days? Why are you in a bad mood? I don't know. Makes me even matter. <laughs> when you're having one of those days, you can remember, but then there's Christ. That'll do it. When you work so hard for a promotion or a raise or a relationship or a husband or a wife or a baby and it all even actually goes as planned and you get there and you're empty and depressed and dissatisfied, you can remember but then there's Christ. That'll do it. When you've lost your job, you can remember, but then there's Christ. When you've lost a friend, you can remember. When you have a thorn in the flesh, you can remember, but then there's Christ. When you're dealing with a fallen world, sickness, disease, pain, suffering, you can remember, but then there's Christ. And even when you've lost a loved one, you can remember, but then there's Christ. And that'll do it. Let's pray. Lord, that'll do it. That'll do it. We're so thankful for the work of Christ. We count it so sufficient. Lord, whatever trial, whatever struggle, whatever itch that we face... We embrace that for the instrument that it is that points us Christward. Lord, I pray for clarity this morning. I pray that you can speak to people's hearts in a way that no man can. And that you can deliver a word that points people in the direction of soul contentment. And heart contentment. In the finished and singular work and person of Christ. Thank you so much, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.